0: Hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. This podcast relates the realities of Arab women and their rich and diverse experiences. It aims to present multiplicity of their voices and wishes to break overdue cultural stereotypes about women of the Middle East. Season 5 is a collaboration between Musawa and Women of the Middle East podcast. As we will be discussing Musawa's latest book, Justice and Beauty in Muslim Marriage, Towards Egalitarian Ethics and Laws, published by One World Academic in December of 2022. My name is Amal Malki. I'm a feminist, scholar, and an educator. This is Women of the Middle East podcast. Hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. Season 5 discusses the groundbreaking book, Justice and Beauty in Muslim Marriage. In this episode, we zoom into Section 4, Law and Practice. Our second guest, the author of Justice, Refinement and Beauty, Reflections on Marriage and Spirituality, Dr. Saadia Sheikh. Dr. Sadia, welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. Thank you very much, Amal. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. So thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure having you. Now, the question I ask all of my guests is, what did it attract you to become a contributor in this book? Could you tell us more about this uh you know your contribution to the book so I uh, of
1: course have been working with Musawa for a while and contributed to a previous collection uh, that was that was edited also by, by by authors and by the the organization of Musawa um, and I think it's a it's a kind of a commitment to a broader vision of of Islam and of Muslim ethics and of gender justice and so uh, this particular group of scholars uh, for me, uh, a very inspiring group of scholars, and I was incredibly, you know, honoured to be asked to be uh, to contribute to this volume, uh, because I think we share a common vision of how to imagine a different way of being Muslim uh, in the world today that is aligned to a deeper sense of or that attempts to be aligned to a deeper sense of justice and beauty. Uh, so, it's, it's a wonderful group of scholars whose work I have an enormous amount of respect for uh, and about a collective vision of, of, of building um, of building something together.
0: Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, in your chapter, um, you forward the idea that for a believer, marriage constitutes a workshop. For human divine encounters, you consider how to cultivate spiritually nourishing marriages that are based on justice and beauty through rituals, contracts, and day-to-day practice. Could you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I'm, my approach is is pretty much based on thinking around how we would look at marriage as a space or a workshop for the self, uh, because ultimately, you know, within within the Muslim tradition. Uh, a central or a foundational uh, part of the tradition is to be thinking about what does it mean to be in a relationship to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and what does it mean to be in a relationship to other human lives in a way that enables our deepening of the spirit, our deepening of the self, our deepening of, of good, of the divine qualities. And so I frame this very much in a kind of, uh, you know, in a framework of thinking through some theological ideas, which then have a resonance with with relationships. Uh, and so I, I frame the discussion as, um, you know, as a workshop for spirituality, as a workshop for Marriage is a space for refinement Uh, and this comes out of a particular Islamic worldview that thinks about the nature of God and the nature of human beings. Um, And so the idea of Rahmah, of Allah's uh, idea of Allah's Rahmah extends and embraces all things. The Quran says, Allah says also in the Quran, my mercy prevails over my wrath. Um, and so, this idea of a kind of divine rahma as grounding all of existence and the divine is a central way in which I kind of think through, you know, how do we, how do we then translate these into human relationships? And then a human being within this worldview, and there's, you know, kind of a deep uh, genealogy of thinking about the human being within uh, various spiritual traditions of Islam as a constellation, a combination, a mixture, a a reflection or a microcosm of the divine attributes. Uh, And so how do we align these divine attributes in the world? the argument that I'm making is based on tradition and based on the Qur'an and based on the prophetic, prophetic tradition, there is what Muslim thinkers would call Jamali qualities and Jalali qualities, qualities of beauty and qualities of majesty. Uh, and, and really the alignment between these and the integration and the kind of balance in achieving. Uh, a specific kind of subjectivity a specific kind of personhood a specific kind of relationship in the world requires a balance of these and our indicators from all of the sources is that that balance requires more jamal than jalal you know as i've noted the point that Allah Allah's rahma supersedes and embraces all things all of the quran you know all of the the um, you know, the, out of the 114 chapters of the Quran, 113 of them commence with a basmallah, so in the name of Allah, the most lovingly compassionate, the most merciful. So this idea of a Rahmah as kind of framing the Quran, so that even our approach to interpreting and reading the Quran is prefaced by these kind of very Jamali qualities of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la. So in some sense, it's asking us to enter the Quran through this portal, through this doorway, through this window of Rahma, Everything we read should be read and inscribed to Rahmah. Our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi has been called Rahmatul Alameen, uh, the mercy to all of the world. So when we read the Sunnah, when we read the Hadith tradition, that is the portal to understand and to to kind of, you know, Enter into that kind of way of thinking about personhood, about subjectivity, about what kind of ideal person one wants to be. And the point that I make in the article also is that Aisha radiallahu an, who was um, you know the wife of the Prophet, ﷺ, kind of commented that he was the embodiment of the Quran. Uh, and so what might we what might it take to embody the Quran? Um, and you know, the fact that he is embodying this divine message in his relationship to his wife that she is commenting on it helps us to understand that the spiritual life and 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 religious ethics must bear fruit not only in the public sphere as i argue but also in our intimate interpersonal relationships so i think what this allows us to be what i call a jamali ethics so jamali ethics is to nourish and to think about what does it mean for rahma for believers who are lovers of God, of the Quran, and the Prophet, we are inscribed at new we are invited at numerous levels to bring upon ourselves and into our relationships loving compassion and mercy. Um, and and so the question is how, how do we then integrate this into our marriages? And and that's kind of how I frame this kind of approach um, to be thinking about about marriage.
0: Beautiful and, and you know following up on this basically. In what ways could? Um... Nikah, marriage practices and rituals be more gender just, inclusive, and spiritually fulfilling for all parties. Um, How do we bring that into the marriage contract, the day to day? Practices.
1: So you know, I mean, I'm I'm uh, probably a lot of my my piece looks to how we might bring it in in the day-to-day live live living realities of marriage. I mean, let me first say that one of the things that I do write about is that the actual nikah ceremonies themselves, both the contract and the ceremonies, we need to be thinking about important and socially relevant ways in which we can bring questions of a rahma, of justice. And, and for me, justice is integral to this balance, not just for me, but I mean, I mean, you know, I can speak to, you know, why justice is so central when we're thinking justice is the foundation of how beauty can emerge. We cannot have beauty without a kind of justice that is foundational to that. Uh, and so on the one hand, I want to, to note that the nikah contract um, is something that's, you know. That's the way in which we might institute forms of justice and beauty. Uh, You know, in, in my community, as I write in the article, it's often the case that women are not Kind of don't don't think very much about the nikah contract. They're not given the resources, the kinds of information, the ways of thinking about how to how to negotiate a contract, uh, and the power, so to say. So that's the one part I think that requires a significant amount of work. And I mean, Muslim feminist scholars and other Muslim scholars are doing work on how we can rethink those contracts. But secondarily, and I think equally important for our community and for our imagination and for how we're thinking about just rituals when we have a ritual i don't know what the you know what the what the norms are in the communities that you come from but in in the community that i come from in south africa it's not unusual for a, for for the for the husband and the fathers to come to the woman in the home ask her permission and her father would normally be actually speak for her in that case so she doesn't even verbalize her own response she's simply present, then they go to the to the to the to the masjid, which is where the official kind of ceremony happens. So the woman is actually absent in all of that. And and, and the question that I ask is that if we starting off this very central ritual by women being invisible and being silent, it does not it does not bode well for thinking around you know, entering into a space of partnership, of mutuality, of justice and equality. So we need to rethink our rituals. And I think this is also quite different depending on the context you come in. So in, in our context in South Africa, the, the way in which we've been urging many women to, to basically speak you know, as part of the contract, to think through what the contract entails, but to to be an equal partner. If you're not an equal partner, even in the ritual, or even in thinking through the more important contractual parts of that of that marriage, it it it, it doesn't bode well uh, for for how we might think of of, of working through. So, so so that's that's really thinking about the ritual. But then, a lot of the article that I that I of my of my paper in this book um, is looking at how we might think of marriage as as inner work. And and what that would look like. You know, what would that look like? Inner work, spiritual work. Uh, You know, a a lot of the ways in which we think about this, and I I draw deep inspiration from a number of teachers, and I quote in this work um, the Sheikh Muhammad Rahim Ba'al Muhyaddin, who was a Sufi teacher uh, and who writes a beautiful little book on love. And he says that unless love is connected to Allah, unless it's connected to truth, to compassion, to justice and to grace, it's possible for it to break down. And so in my article or in this particular paper, I speak about what that would look like. You know, what, how would we imagine, you know, so if we're connecting love to questions of of, of truth, what does that mean? Uh, and and I speak to questions of what being in a relationship of comfort of honesty of candor of truthfulness Uh, and that that can only happen when you are genuinely in a reciprocal relationship with somebody uh, where you are frank and you can be unguarded and there's a space to be authentic Uh, and so the question is what creates that comfort being comfortable in your skin with your partner Um, you know that, that that allows it And then I speak to, you know, what that might look like when you have truth and honesty. Sometimes that can be harsh to hear. And so the idea of Rahma being connected to that truthfulness so that one is compassionate in how you, uh, it mediates, compassion mediates the quality of a kind of a sharp honesty. When honesty has a potential to become brutal, it's the compassion that holds the honesty with tenderness and it allows marriage to become a space of comfort. So that's the one dimensions. And then I argue very strongly that justice is essential to love in this way, right? So that. And justice is not just kind of the outer justice. Justice is also what you bring at the inner level. And so one example of this is I say that when we're in marriage and one of the ways to be just to a partner is not to simply say in moments of frustration and irritation. And we all have that in marriage, right, where you perhaps see the same irritating quality happening for 100 times instead of focusing and zoning in just on that, oh, this person is so annoying, uh, justice requires at the inner level that even in moments that are difficult, we don't only focus on one aspect of our spouse, that we constantly see the fullness of who somebody is and try to bring that kind of inner justice. So you're not looking partially or selectively or biasedly at this individual, you're engaging them with the fullness of who they might be. And that that requires inner attentiveness, right? Um, And so... You know, the, the, you know, those are the dimensions, uh, you know, and I, I have some very practical things that I also speak to. I don't know if, if you'd like me to speak to that in, in more detail. Oh,
0: definitely. You know, it, it was very beautiful to read your chapter. Uh, you know, you speak about the rituals of nikah, and it's really interesting that it's very similar to our part of the world as well. Uh, and I, I see those rituals mainly driven by traditions rather than really religious practices. And... I, for myself and for many women around me, I don't think we've even seen the contract of marriage. You know that we've signed. You know that it's we never read the contract of marriage. So, so Fatima
1: Sidet, uh, Dr. Fatima Sidet, who is based at the University of Cape Town as well, is currently doing some interesting work, which is which is not currently published, but she's doing some really interesting work around thinking through marriage contracts that's not premised because historically marriage contracts are premised on the nikah contract in islamic law is premised on a model of ownership keisha ali has done enormous amounts of work revealing that in her uh, legal scholarship and so fatima's kind of more constructive and creative work is to bring to the table other ways you know what what are what are contracts of partnership within islamic law and how could you rethink you know mahar should no longer be uh, a gift of Purchasing effectively access to a woman's sexual, you know, sexuality, mahar could become, uh, if we rethink it very creatively and constructively, could become an exchange of gifts. Uh, so I think we need to be really open. Uh, and I think this also premise is, is also related to a construct of religion. You know, we, we need to rethink the tradition, not as something that we are inheritors of and need to take on as a kind of way of belonging, but also to creatively engage what how tradition can be meaningful in our contemporary terms with our evolving sense of justice and spiritual alignment and the idea of being in relationships of a Rahma and of beauty and of justice. and And, and justice is an unfolding thing. Justice is never set. What justice means, you know, for the fuqaha in the 10th century versus the 15th century versus the 21st century should be very different things because justice itself happens as a dynamic relationship to the outer. You know, the ayat on the horizon and the ayat within ourselves and the ayat in the text should be in a dynamic relationship of unfolding. Uh, And so, you know, what I'm trying to do in my article also is to foreground what those relationships might look like if we take seriously the inner work of of spiritual alignment and inner justice and and justice in our outer relationships. Because the other work, the other point that we're trying to make, uh, and incidentally, I mean, I don't know if you know this, uh, Amal, but we have a a book called The Woman's Khutbah Book that has just been published between Fatima Sidat and myself. Co-edited and you know we have a whole bunch of contributors to that book, and we have a set of nikah khutbas in that book, which you know engages questions very strongly of of how to be rethinking in this time and this space. But it's also to say that tradition is is constantly has historically always been made in relationship to to realities on the ground, and must continue. We are co-creators of a tradition. Muslim communities from time immemorial have always created Islam in lived, actual dynamic, engaged, you know, spiritually alive and socially responsive ways. And we should continue to do so. And so rethinking nikah contracts, rethinking nikah ceremonies, rethinking the ways in which we engage with one another And if we're doing it from an Islamic framework, we have to ground this, I argue, like many other people in this idea of a Jamali ethics, because that is what Allah describes, you know, Allah's self as what the Prophet is described as and what human beings are supposed to be aligning within ourselves. So, 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 So my chapter kind of offers some some ways to be thinking about that as as to all of the amazing other pieces in the book.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. I really enjoyed uh, reading your chapter. Thank you so much, Dr. Sadia. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, thank you for your contribution to this groundbreaking book. Alhamdulillah. Thank you very much, Amal. Thank you for having me. This is Women of the Middle East podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Season 5. To stay up to date with Women of the Middle East podcast, you can subscribe and don't forget to rate us. If you would like to contact me directly, you can do so on Instagram or Twitter or via email. This is Women of the Middle East Podcast.